before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discussed during the end game should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now, on with the show. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of The Endgame. Joining me, as always, uh, though not from Seattle, I'm delighted to say, from the warmth of the California desert, is the one and only Bill Fleckenstein. Hi, mate. Um, how are you today, Grant? I am good. I'm good. I'm looking forward to this conversation. You know, this is as we've kind of worked our way through this series, um, you know, we keep adding names to the list of people we want to talk about. It, it seems like we're never going to get to the end of the people we want to, we want to talk about. But this week, um, uh, our guest is, is Jim Stack of Investec Research. And Jim is someone who I'm not as familiar with as Bill. But the more I've dug into Jim and his framework and his work over the years, the more fascinated I am to have this conversation, Bill. You know, he's, he's been in these markets for the best part of 50 years now. And I'm always interested to talk to people who've survived, not just financially, but mentally and emotionally, that kind of ride. And I know he's someone that you, you follow closely. Yes, what, I, what I've been particularly fascinated about is having watched his, or taken his service you know, for 25 years or so, um, if people listen to the end game, they've heard us discuss lots of problems. And, and in the prior bubbles, I could tell by his writings, Jim was aware of all the problems we we're aware of. And yet he managed to navigate the bull market and the bear market, if you combine the two, better than anyone else that, that I've seen. Yeah. Obviously, plenty of hedge funds you know, may have done better. But you know, Jim is accessible for the public. He has a service yeah. that you can take. And, um, and I've, just, I've just been amazed at how great the compendium of the work that they do when they apply it to the common sense that they have has worked out. So I'm, I'm, I'm really looking forward to talk to him in some detail about um, all the things that are evolving around the equity market. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's funny that, that idea of having indicators that you can trust and then overlaying common sense. Whoever would have thought that would be a good idea, right? <laughs> but, but, it, yeah. but, it, but it is, it's such a great framework to build from, right? Having something that you trust, something that's demonstrated over time that, okay, I can rely, I don't have to rely on it 100% of the time, but it's always going to at least point me in the right direction and sanity check my, my, my brain when it decides to go off on its own. Well, let's, uh, let's get Jim in here and uh, see what he has to say. Let's do it. Jim, thank you for joining us on The End Game. And one of the things that, that we have been trying to explore with, with uh, thoughtful investment people that we know is how might this period of money printing end? Um, you know, obviously, there's a lot of different ways it can end. I, I don't think anyone thinks it can go on forever. But I think Wall Street and the and the public have been pretty convinced there's no adverse consequences to that. And and despite the the writings that you have, um, I mean, I I read your um, issues whenever you publish them. Uh, you know, I can see that you're kind of concerned about some things, but I haven't noticed you really talk about how this period may end. And uh, have you given it much thought? Do you have any any insights on that? And just open ended question. Actually, 
I would say that I'm lying awake at night uh, worrying about this market more so than at any time since perhaps the late 1990s. Uh, I think there are differences today, uh, but there are striking parallels, including all the tangential, really hyper, you know, nutty stuff like uh, what's going on in Tesla and what's what's happened with uh, Signal Advance being mistaken for the wrong company. I mean, the speculative yeah. nuttiness. People look back today and they look back at the 1990s, particularly younger investors, and they say, how could anyone have been so foolish to buy into all this stuff? And and all these dot-com bubbles, and and yet they look at today and, and they don't see the problem, which goes back to the old adage that we talked about in the late 90s is that uh, a bubble is invisible to those inside the bubble. And, <laughs> and I think that, that the other unfortunate aspect about speculative bubbles is that they're only definitively uh, recognized in hindsight. Um, Back then, in the late 90s, we um, we were very defensive, too early, as many market historian analysts were, and, and those who had a high degree of respect for risk. And we didn't know how to play in it. And, and that's the difficulty, is when you get into a period like this, how do you invest in a market that seems to endlessly go up? In the late 90s, we... Uh, we we're in extreme cash. We were 85, 90% cash. We went to our money management clients on our money management side and said, we're going to waive all of your fees simply because we don't know how to play in this. And our clients stayed loyal. And in the aftermath, all of those clients are still on board today. And that's the positive aspect of it. From a research standpoint, um, there's a lot of differences, but there's a lot of parallels when you go back from today to the late 90s and what happened in Japan in 1989. So we've got lots to talk about today. Yeah, we sure do. Well, I, I, I should have set this up beforehand. And, and that is for anyone who doesn't know, um, I think I've been probably taking your service, Jim, since the mid 90s. And one of the things that I uh, really w was sort of awed and really respect about y your work and your view is um, you recognize the danger, you caught the upside as well as anyone could who also avoided the downside. So somehow the combination of your technical work and your indicators that you use and your sort of common sense has allowed you to navigate you know, this, what do we call it? The 25 years worth of activist central bank era, as well as anyone that, that I, that I'm aware of. Um, so how do you, how do you try to, how do you try to balance those things? The, the, the sort of the fundamental versus your indicators. You know, I know you're carrying some cash now. Um, maybe you could kind of illuminate, uh, that a little bit for, for folks. Yeah. A lot of my or our philosophy at Investec Research comes back from my indoctrination in the market, which was back in 1973-74, which turned out to be the worst bear market since the, the Great Depression. And I was a cocky young engineer working in IBM in research and development. So I had the world by the <laughs> tail. And for a very bright young engineer to lose half of everything you put into anything you bought was an eye-opening experience. <laughs> and then it was a life-changing experience. And I, I never lost that respect for risk after that. 
Um, we started the research firm when I, I was a project manager with IBM at that point and decided to leave and start the financial research firm in 1980. And the first thing we did was go down in the basement libraries of the universities, hired un, uh, graduate students, and went back and actually went into the archive articles from those past bear markets, going all the way back to and including 1929. So basically, I had my experience from 73, 74, which was painful and eye-opening, but I wanted to learn about those past bear markets of the, the late 60s, 69, 70, and 66, uh, the 62 small crash at, and, and as well as 19, 1929, because that was a phenomenon that that uh, most investors never didn't live long enough to recover from. So um, what we do is we, we look at the technical aspect of the market. There are certain technical tools that are more reliable in telling you and keeping you in gear with the market. I'm not a big fan of wave analysis uh, or, or different tangential sentiment indicators I think are very misleading because they never peak at the same level twice, but there are technical tools that tell you whether or not you should be invested up to a certain level. And, and the other aspect is, of course, the monetary side. And my monetary side goes back to some, someone you will, recommend, you will remember, and that's, of course, Marty Zweig. Mm. Uh, he is the one who uh, brought the adage to the table, never fight the Fed. And no, at no time in history, has that ever been more true than in the past two years, ever since December 2018, when basically the Fed tightening, you know, gradually incrementing rates higher, all of a sudden had this effect on the market. It was the worst December in, you know, in, yeah. in literally in history, and the Fed panicked. And from that, it's been one panic to another to another with the Fed, to where but right now they're basically following the Central Bank of Japan principle um, provide enough liquidity and you support and you try to support anything. And that's, that's my concern today is that if I look at it historically, uh, you're opened with the question, how is it going to end? And I, I think the clear answer is that it's going to end badly. Now, what that means is that you have to have a strategy that allows for that, prepares for that, and hopefully keeps one foot in the door so that uh, I, I think we've seen at times in the last few years that that when the music looks like it might stop, that exit door gets very crowded very quickly. Jim, Jim, let me let me, let me ask you, it's uh, something you said that I find really interesting because I, I, like you, I, I came into the markets just before the 87 crash. And so that was really my formative experience. I had the, 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 the run up in the Japanese equity market, which is where I started my career. So I had this speculative blow off. Then I had the 22% drawdown in a day. And that colored my experience. And, I, and I'm a firm believer that you're, you know, the, the time you come into the market is a really important um, lodestar for the rest of your career and how you think about risk. But listening to you talk about that, something struck me when you talked about going back and looking at the other bear markets. I mean, you named three or four bear markets, major bear markets, within sort of eight years of your commencement in the, in the business. And, but people today, really, if you come into this market, the only frame of reference you have was, is 08. Then you go back 10 years to 2000. And then what? I mean, people don't... So, so you have to be in the business a long time these days to experience a bear market and have that kind of 
um, have that kind of exposure to what they mean. So how do you think people in the market that really don't have any frame of reference of what a bear market's like, apart from these very short-term panics that, to your point, the Fed swamps immediately, how does that amplify the problems when the turn finally comes? I, I think that is one of the biggest exposures today, particularly, and I wouldn't even say for younger investors. If you don't have um, 20 years experience, you basically have one market cycle. That is mm -hmm. the, the 2000, the market peaked in um, uh, October of 2007, bottomed in March of 2009 in, in that bear market that everyone looks back on, even some of the, the Top professionals look back on and call it an aberration, something, it was a housing bubble. <laughs> you had all this concentration of these make-believe, these, these artificial mortgages. And, and so that can't happen again. In reality, you go back and it happens again and again. Um, they also look back at the, the, the tech bubble in the late 90s and they say, oh, yeah, that was a, a tech bubble, you know. We're not seeing that. We're seeing some isolated pockets of speculation. We don't have a problem in the broader market. Well, even in the late 90s, um, we forget that the NASDAQ may have lost 78%. In fact, it was down over 50% by, you know, and the rest of the market hadn't even started falling by that point. But the S&P still lost almost 50% in that bear market. Um, historically, bear markets have come around every four to six years. The last two have been on a 10-year spacing, and I think that's created a false sense of security. And I think the other danger, really a big danger today, is the only lesson learned out of the pandemic panic is that um, a reinforcement of buy the dip. Yeah. And, and yeah. I think that is going to compound the losses for investors who don't have that historical respect for for bear markets and for downside risk. Uh, bear markets, that, that really wasn't a bear market that we had in, in 2020. That was a pandemic-induced panic. We had the ingredients for a potential bear market, but let's face it, um, <laughs> if, if the Federal Reserve had started to take away the punch bowl in 2018 and then kind of brought it back to the party after that because yeah. they got scared by December 2018, last year they poured a gallon of 180 proof into that punch bowl to make sure all the participants, you know, continue partying. So let me, uh, the, you know, the way you des described what the feds had to do, we talked to Paul Singer on our last podcast and he described the fed as trapped. They, they, they don't they have anything that they actually can do, but ease. It sounds like you sort of agree with that thinking, although you didn't say it that way. And, and if, if, if you, do agree that's the case, it would seem to me that that would cause people to be more nervous instead of being giddy. I mean, if they can only do one thing and it is to create more liquidity or lower rates, obviously the markets have chosen to party for a long time. But if everyone knows they can't exit, that certainly ups the risks. And it, But it doesn't seem to me like most many people think about it that way. How, how does how do how do you react to that comment? Well, I think the only aspect that makes seasoned investors more nervous and so nervous about today's market 
is the knowledge about market history. Yeah, exactly right. Because they, they know what we're seeing today is, um, you know, a problem. They know that based on virtually all valuation measures, whether you talk about the Schiller PE or the Tobin Q or, or the, the, you know, even the forward looking PE ratio and, and, the, and the market cap uh, to, to GDP, which is Buffett's favorite mm-hmm. valuation indicator, we're all above the, the 95th percentile. In other words, the market has been more overvalued than today, less than 5% of the time. And what is supporting those extreme valuations is basically the ultra accommodative, and I would call it ultra aggressive monetary policy. And in our view, that makes this probably the most interest rate sensitive market in history, not just in our lifetime, but in history. Yeah. If you go back and, and it's an interesting history lesson, if you go back and look at when past bubbles ended and what popped them, it's at the time, every bubble, and, and this was a problem in the late 90s, we knew it was a tech bubble. We knew it was carrying valuations of the whole market with it. The, the gains in the last 18 months of that tech bubble, uh, 80% of the S&P gains were occurring in less than 20% of the stocks. It was a concentration of momentum and investor fervor and, and enthusiasm in not the broad market, you know, and but in a, a narrowing spectrum of spot stocks. And uh, so you didn't know where the pinholes come for, going to come from. In reality, it came from the same place it did in Japan and back in 1929, came from the central bank. It was the Fed's reluctance uh, after long-term capital management collapsed in 1998, the Fed cut rates twice. And of course, that re-inflated the bubble to even yeah. bigger proportions in 99 until it peaked in the first quarter of yeah. 2000. But by then, the Fed was were basically raised interest rates three or four times. The fourth rate hike, um, Greenspan was getting frustrated. So instead of a quarter-point rate hike, he did a half-point rate hike. This is incremental Greenspan, finally did a half-point rate hike, literally coincidental with the peak of the bubble. The Fed put the pinhole in it. And but, if, but, but they, can't, they can't tighten now. That's right. So and, how, and how do so, we get that piece of the how do we, how do we How does that come into play if we know they can't even think about thinking about it for two years? Well, the question is, have we created a perpetual valuation machine? One that can just keep going and going and going. Can this thing just keep get, getting bigger and bigger? Uh, I don't know. You're the guest. You tell I me. Did, I did want to tie, tie in one parallel back historically. Uh, and then this is what, what helps from knowing more about history. In 1929, the Federal Reserve did the same thing. They were Back then, they always moved the discount rate a half point. And they, and they, they didn't like the speculation, the fervor on Wall Street. Mm-hmm. So they went half point, half point, half point. But then in October 1929, they raced at a full percentage yeah. point, and, yeah. and basically, so, so it, that's what what popped that bubble. Today, the question is: Is it going to require a change in monetary policy? And I can't answer that question. We don't have a great deal of historical precedent. We do from those two eras. We also have it from Japan. And I printed out a, a chart of the Japan discount rate versus the Nikkei. It, it's interesting. In 1989, um, there was a Gallup poll 
that showed the majority of Americans thought that the Japan had taken over as the global economic mm -hmm. leader. Yep. Mm -hmm. And in 1989, the Nikkei uh, hit between, I think it was between 39,000 and 40,000. Yeah, 39, the level has never yeah. been back to today. But at that time, the Central Bank of Japan in 1989 started bringing up rates up fast. And they not only put the pinhole in the bubble, they basically put a slice in it because they kept interest raising interest rates for six months after right. the Nikkei was falling like a rock. Even after it had fallen almost 50%, they were still raising interest rates. So is that the outlook we should watch for today? I think to some extent, yes. I think monetary is going to continue to play a very sensitive and contributory role to how this unfolds. If the Fed keeps their foot on the pedal, um, it's will it support it? Yes. Will it prevent it? I don't know. Uh, but at some point, you have to ask, will the Fed take their foot off the gas? Because I don't think it's going to take, uh, you know, three or four rate hikes before no. interest rate sensitivity no. sends this market, starts sending this market downward. Um, in that respect, it's interesting to see some of the underlying inflation pressures building as we're coming out of this pandemic. The ISM survey, their their index of prices paid component has, has shot up straight upward. And we are starting to see pressures that, that I don't know that it's going to reverse Fed policy. The Fed's not going to raise rates um, because they don't want to be blamed for putting the pinhole in the bubble. What they want is an optimal scenario where monetary conditions might tighten themselves. If they take the foot off the gas, then longer term rates, 10 and 30 year treasuries, corporate bonds might start moving higher. And we are in fact starting to see that in in 10-year treasuries, which all of a sudden now are like 1.15%. You know, if, if the 10-year treasury goes to 2%, I think it's going to start weighing on, on the market. What is the Fed's objective? The Fed's objective is an outcome like the tech bubble. Because if you look at once they... Uh, once they put the pinhole in it in, you know, in the first quarter of 2000, the Fed started reversing, I think it was literally before the end of the year. By then, markets were coming down. We went through a very, very severe bear market in the washout of the tech bubble and everything except for the small cap stocks, which, which hadn't participated in the final stage of that bull market. And they didn't fall, uh, if you look at the S&P unweighted, which looks at the not the lesser big cap stocks, it fell half of what the S&P did. It fell about 25, 26%. Um, but we went through a bear market that went basically from March of 2000 up through October 2002. Uh, that's two and a half years. And yet the recession was relatively mild. It, the recession unfolded in 2001. It started... Uh, literally a year after the market peak. The recession started in March of 2001. And what's funny about this, and we actually use a slide of presentations on this, is that uh, the recession started in March of 2001. In May and June, there were five, four different 
Federal Reserve governors who all came out and said, we are not in a recession, we're not going in a recession. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. would later be determined that year that uh, we were already in a recession and started back in March. So the, the one thing that we can guarantee about uh, about a downturn and about a recession is that the recession will not be forecast in advance by any poll of economists and certainly not by the Federal Reserve. And that uh, basically uh, the starting date you know, of course, the will be backdated. I think the the for all practical purpose, the recession that was caused by the pandemic, and they backdated that to February start. It it ended in the third quarter of 2020. We are in uh, an economic recovery. All the numbers confirmed that. Uh, the employment numbers confirmed that. And I I think the NBER will will the National Bureau of Economic Research that that in perfect 2020 hindsight tells us when a recession started a year ago and when it ended six months ago. I think they'll come out uh, in, in the second quarter of this year and say that it ended, you know, it, it ended last year and we're, we're in a recovery. Well, given the fact that the Fed has made it pretty clear and some members have made it even more clear that they want at least 2% inflation. Now, they've, they've, they've written this new rule over the last decade or so that we now need a 2% inflation mandate. And of course, Evans is talking about two and a half, maybe three. Um, it, it doesn't seem possible that they would be contemplating tightening before probably the end of the year at the earliest. So, I mean, given the fact that in all the prior bubbles, you needed this excessive speculation, which we're seeing in spades, but you needed some monetary tightness. Um, I guess does, that would mean that in the absence of Fed tightening, the monetary spec, sorry, the speculation would have to get so out of control that it could collapse on itself. I don't know if that's even possible. Historically, we don't have any real precedence because we've never had QE before. Yeah. So I guess um, if I was to sum up what you were saying is, it's probably unlikely that the market can do anything really ugly on the downside as long as the Fed is printing $120 billion a month. Is that fair to say? I, I think that is fair to say. Now, the the one caveat that everyone brings to the table or the, the basically those that are most nervous in the market bring to the table is what about the possibility of an external trigger, an external event? Um, mm. and, and you can toss out all sorts of ideas there. What about a variant to the to the, the COVID-19 that basically forces a mandatory global lockdown on the economies and stuff? And yeah, I mean, those, those type of events are all, all, always a possibility out there, but but the probability is is that they're not going, that's not going to happen from an, an external event. It's going to probably happen from, um, from monetary. Now, the one thing to keep in mind is about monetary is it doesn't have to come from the Fed. Um, you know, we still have the bond market that that it, from the U.S. is literally too big for the Fed to control. And, you know, I, I hesitate to say that because you know, we have a Fed that, that will pull out all means. All, but what they're really trying to do is control the psychology with respect to the bond market. If you go back and look at past history, long-term bond yields often have moved by what we used to call the bond vigilantes, those that if the Fed was not tightening, then the bond market would tighten for it. And in fact, that's what happened back in 1987. 
we were in uh, in Investec. We were like 80% invested going into 1987. By the time the market peaked, we were very defensive. We were down to only 40% invested, and we actually ended up, you know, and it was more fortuitous than <laughs> forecasting. We exited our last stock position the week before the crash. Why did we do it? Well, the bond vigilante starts stepping in in the summer, in July, mm-hmm. August, and we saw um, bond yields going upward, and we had, ironically, a new appointee at the helm of the Fed, <laughs> Alan Greenspan. Yeah who stepped in, and the first thing he did is he allowed, back then the Fed was very secretive, they didn't tell you what they were doing, but you watched you know, the tea leaves and you watched short-term rates. Short-term rates went up, 90-day table rates went up one and a half percentage points in the 90 days leading up to, in, in 90 days. That, that's like the Fed today doing six quarter point rate yeah, hikes yeah. in three months. And then, and then we have Black Monday, and and people look back and say, "Oh, that was an accident caused by program trading." Nonsense. It was a reaction to, to the monetary. So I think the risk today, I'll put them out squarely. Bod ventilates are still going to have con- some control, if not overwhelming control. And the other influence that no one talks about is the U.S. dollar. If the U.S. dollar starts falling, like it did. In 1987, it could be the one of the contributors too. Okay, I have two follow-up questions. I understand both of those points, and one would be: um, <clears throat> if the bond market tries to back up, uh, my 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 clever phrase, or what I think is a clever phrase, is that's what I call the bond market t- trying to take the printing press away from the Fed. You know the the whole act of bond vigilantism. It seems to me if they start if that starts to happen, then I then I would assume the Fed would come in and institute yield curve control, which of course would be like pouring gas in unlit fire to anyone to, to the bond vigilantes viewpoint. Yeah. And and so I'd like to know how how you see that 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 little wrinkle playing out. And th- as for the dollar, th- that makes sense to me too, except for the fact that. How does it decline against the euro where they're doing the same thing and the Swiss is tied to the euro and the yen is the yen? And um, um, I'm sympathetic to both those arguments. But then I say, well, anyway, so how does that actually happen? So exactly. How can the dollar be weak when the the currencies throughout the world are also weak? They're all confetti for stronger currency. It's a competition for the weakest currency. Exactly. Um, Exactly. You know, so you're you're exactly right. And and that is one of one of the the challenges in today's in today's market. Uh, We are uh, actually uh, at a higher invested allocation today than I, I would have expected or anticipated in this type of a climate, we are uh, a little over 75% invested. We're, but we are being very, very defensive in how we're invested there. And and but what we're doing is avoiding the higher risk areas. We're trying. We're avoiding all the overvalued. All we're not avoiding all the technology stocks. But the the challenge today is that we can't invent the world we live in or invent the market we live in, and we can't select it. In other words, we can't say, well, I don't like this hand. I'm going to throw away these cards. Give me a new hand. I want a different climate to invest in today that, that has more predictability and, and, and an ability to take away this, 
what I would call almost a systemic risk of a major bear market that, that lies ahead. And so I think we, what we have to do is we have to accept that. We have to uh, plan a strategy to it. And we have to watch for those warning flags. You don't have to be the first person out the door. Uh, you certainly don't want to be caught with the masses. And I, I think the, that um, as we go through this year, the Fed, you're right in the battle, the battle between the central bank and the bond vigilantes. At least for now, the Fed's going to win. Mm -hmm. But if coming out of the pandemic, you were dealing with mm -hmm. a vaccine that has an efficacy rate that is amazing. I, I mean, it, 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 it is, it's just, it's thrilling to see a possible light at the end of the economic tunnel and know that it's not an oncoming train. Mm. Um, and, and as we go through the vaccination and come out, if we can come out with any type of economic normalcy, I think deep down it is on the Fed's agenda to try to allow the speculative frenzy and the extreme valuations on Wall Street to normalize. In other words, to let them come down like they did after the tech bubble in 2000. And, and, and in other words, the Fed's not going to fight a falling market. What they're fighting for is economic stability, which we don't have today, but we could have in as little as three to five months. And if we come out and we do have economic stability where things, everything is getting reopened, and uh, economic data is as strong as it remarkably is today in terms of the ISM manufacturing services sector and, and the LEI is holding up well, I think the Fed would actually embrace a cooling of the ardor on, on Wall Street. In other words, they know what's happening is bad. They just don't know how to deal with it without causing broader, far-reaching circumstances that, um, you know, that, that, that would have repercussions that are not acceptable today. Economic, severe economic repercussions today would be extremely damaging. And that's, you know, that's why the Fed has all cards on the table, you know, both feet on, on, on one gas pedal, and they're pushing very, very hard. Jim, let me, let me ask you, because um, this has been kind of a central uh, part of this conversation Fleck and I have had in, in so many parts over these last uh, months. This idea that, that the Fed can let the air out of the bubble, it seems to me that today this, this speculative frenzy, and let's face it, it is a frenzy. You said earlier on, quite rightly, that those inside the bubble can't see it, but it feels like this is, and it's been called the everything bubble by so many people, that very few people seem to be able to see this bubble. And so the chance of it cooling and the chance of them letting a little air out and letting valuations sink gently back to earth seems just almost impossible for me to comprehend how that can happen. And, and on the basis that over the period we've just been talking about, the Fed have aggressively taken responsibility for market outcomes by the scruff of the neck um, and said, essentially in so many words, it's on us. We've, we've got you, yeah. therefore yeah. we own the downside as well. How do they possibly allow that kind of cascade to start um, knowing that 
once it starts, the chance of them actually being able to arrest it from where they are in terms of the ability to print money and throw more at it or lower rates, God forbid they can't do that really anymore. How is that even possible? I, I struggle to wow. comprehend it. <laughs> I, okay. First, I, I didn't I didn't really say uh, uh, allow uh, valuations to float gently back to earth. No, I know. I, I'm uh, yeah, <laughs> the problem. What the Fed the Fed's objective is to fall gradually back to earth. The unwinding of the tech bubble took two and a half years. Yeah, that is why the recession was not a particularly deep one, and. If we can get the economy through this and it is on a stable footing by, say, Q3, the Fed, the Fed's objective is, you know, perhaps, you know, just step back from the bond market. You're right. They're not going to ease. They basically have promised not. To, I'm, I mean, they're not going to tighten. They promised not to raise rates until 2022. They're not going to go back on that promise because if they did go back on that promise and it did end up going down very rapidly, they will get blamed and you'll have Congress taking away their independence and taking over control of the printing presses. And then we're in the worst case scenario ever. Uh, but I, I think every central bank in dealing with situations like this, and it was true in Japan, it was true in uh, the tech bubble, and it was true back in 1929. They always believed that if it starts to come down, that they can step in and they can stabilize the situation. The problem historically has been the greater the valuation and the greater the, the, the bubble, or as you said, the, the broader the bubble, the greater the risk that they will not be able to stabilize it. And they don't necessarily even have to stabilize it if they can slow its descent. We have a, a valuation bubble on Wall Street, and we have a valuation bubble in housing. Those are two. And we can also go on to valuation in low-quality corporate debt and, and on and on. But I think those are the two greatest risks because those are the ones that if air is let out, it's going to affect, potentially affect consumer psychology. Now, we don't have uh, you know, an overwhelming vast majority of consumers out there that are heavily invested or have large portfolios in the stock market necessarily, but we do have a very large spectrum of, of homeowners out there that will be affected if their home prices, which have gone up dramatically in the last three years, start to come down like they did in 2006 and 2007. And I think that that unfortunately is one of the the broader economic risks. Um, the Fed's looking at this from an interest rate standpoint and say a small increase in interest rates uh, isn't going to have a big impact on the economy. They're probably right. Will it have a big impact on on Wall Street? I think it will. That's why I think, as I said, it's the most sensitive interest rate sensitive market in history. So uh, the Federal Reserve is, is obviously. You know, the Federal Reserve's objective is to separate the economy from what's happening on Wall Street. And if they can get the economy stabilized by the third quarter and then perhaps just turn their back on the long term bond market and let it normalize globally or let long term rates come out to where they should be, even based on one and a half or two percent inflation then that will do the job for them in a manner that if it does unwind, 
they don't get blamed for it. Well, they've, they've certainly managed to decouple Wall Street from the economy. I mean, that's mission accomplished there. You well, can hang would, the banner up. I would argue that the economy is the stock market. It, 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 it helps drag the economy along. But, uh, Jim, I wanted to ask you if, um, you know, you, you've described the situation and it sounds like, you know, you, you're, you're leaning a little in the glass half empty, uh, sorry, glass half full camp um, when you analyze all these things. And I was wondering, it, do you think it's because that your 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 cell discipline, your, your your cell indicators that have gotten you, which I saw, you know, you avoided the the two thousand bubble. I mean, the, the the bear market and the housing bear market, and it's been really remarkable how well your your tools in some work. Do, do you think that knowing that you've kind of got that? that fail safe mechanism you feel will, 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 will have you reduce exposure soon enough, uh, makes it easier for you to say, okay, I'll let the glass be half full and I'm not going to worry as much about those things as I would if I didn't have this, 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 um, selling indicator that's worked so well. Yeah. I, I worry about that literally every day as does the rest of our, 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 our team. And do the tools that have worked um, reliably in the past in terms of measuring monetary and measuring technical health of the market, will they work this time? Uh, there is no holy grail on Wall Street. There's no single indicator that's going to be right all the time. Uh, there are some that are more reliable than others and some that are just historically bad ones to follow because when they're wrong, they're, <laughs> they're you know horribly wrong. Um, you know, I do think that um, there were, in a, you know, obviously a unique period because we have multiple asset bubbles out there. We have a central bank that, uh, like the Central Bank of Japan, that by the time you got into the mid '90s, uh, particularly in in the wash, you know, the wash, the final washout of the Japan bubble in 2003. They knew they had a problem where they had to just push on on the gas pedal, and they basically took interest rates down to zero. And of course, today technically they have rates below zero. the The difficulty in the market is that you can't ignore it unless you're going to put your money underneath the mattress and just sit on it. And yet, at the same time, I think there, I think there are safer opportunities out there in value stocks some of those you know that 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 are consumer discretionary and normally this consumer discretionary is not a safe sector in a recession but coming out of this pandemic some of the stocks out there that are benefiting like lowe's home depot uh, you know they're not the highest risk stocks and for disclosure we do own both of those um they've they've run up a, a quite a bit but i think they're still on a on a potential list, but trying to be selective in a market where everything is fully valued and, and a lot of it is severely overvalued is, is difficult. It's challenging. And as you said, we're, we're watching for any evidence that would signal that there has been a, a a, a pinhole put in the valuation because if those extremes come down, that is the the overhyped 
over severely overvalued stocks. And of course, the you know, people think of the Fang, they think think of Tesla. I mean, you know, and, and that's kind of the the, perf, the 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 universal example of extreme. You have one company that's valued more at twice the top five automakers in the US and is selling less than one fifth of the cars of each of those automakers. You just have to scratch your head and say, you know, it takes blind confidence and, and faith. Uh, but when those come down, they will come down the hardest and the fastest. And, and that in itself will be a warning flag that the that there is a, a pinhole in in what is a valuation problem on Wall Street. I, I think one of the one of the telltale scenarios for a possible strategy is the, the washout from the tech bubble in the 90s. Uh, you had the Dow peak in January, the S&P peak in March. And, and by the time you got about eight, nine months into that, um, the NASDAQ was already down close to 50%. I mean, it was clear we were in the midst of what an unwinding. No one guessed it would go on for two and a half years. But if you look at the S&P value index, S&P can be split up into the growth side, the growth index and the S&P value index. The S&P value index was basically still holding near its highs uh, nine months into that bear market. Mm -hmm. So I think the key today is um, leave profits on the table, carry a comfortable cash reserve. For us, that's close to 25%. And, and stick with value. It may be boring, but it will be the most defensive. Um, and, and you will have more time to evaluate whether or not you know, the, the valuation is trying to unwind on Wall Street when it does happen. And it will eventually. Jim, can I, can I just ask you, we, we, we've got onto stocks now, uh, which is great. I, I spoke to Dave Rosenberg last week and and his kind of line in the sand is Q3, when we see earnings start to come through. So what what role do you think earnings could potentially play in this? Because of, as you said a few minutes ago, everything is fully valued, which I think is a very generous <laughs> assessment of the situation. But, but what role do you think earnings could play here? I, I'm going to say a statement that's based on my historical experience, and it's going to sound probably foolish. You know, uh, Earnings are not going to dictate the outcome of this scenario. And, and I'm saying that based on past bull markets and the fact that earnings, earnings always look good at the major market tops. They always do. Uh, coming out of the pandemic in the bottom, I think the big surprise is that earnings are coming in much stronger, much sooner than most analysts expected. And, and in other words, the market is telling us what was telling us over the last um, six to nine months what we're see already seeing in earnings today. Uh, and yet you can say, well, what about projected future earnings? We run multiple valuation metrics. And, and one of them that we do look at is the uh, forward price to earnings ratio based on data from the S&P. And, and of course, the danger there is that forward earnings always turn out to be wrong as soon as you get three months past the market top. But even if you look at that forward earnings PE, which projects that earnings are going to continue rebounding very, very strong, we're dealing with a valuation that is in the stratosphere, again, well above 90%. 
so I, I do expect that we will see upside earnings surprises over the next three to six months. I think it will be often probably widely viewed, oh, that is supportive of this continuing. And, and you know, keep in mind that was also the case back in 2007 at the market peak and back in, in, in 2000, in 1999. Oh, you know, okay, you have all these dot-coms and you have all this tech bubble and stuff, but the earnings will catch up and validate the valuation extremes that we're seeing. The historical truth is, and I don't think there's a truth that's going to be repealed, is that valuation extremes in the market are always resolved through a major bear market, not by earnings catching up and validating those extreme valuations. And I, I can't look back at any example going all the way back into the 1920s where that was not the case. Yeah, and, I, and I, the problem I, I, I think Rosie's point was exactly, I think the point you're making, that earnings are going to disappoint, actually. And it will be, it will be the fact that, that, that we've had the top of how good earnings look. The markets have looked ahead and they've priced them for those better earnings, but they will actually I, disappoint. I, I think there's a, I think, I think they will disappoint, not based on current earnings, but based on the fact that forward earnings are not going to look, you can't keep extrapolating what we've, what we've experienced coming out of, of the lows last March. And in other words, the, the problem when you get into a market like today is, is extrapolation and expectation. Everyone looks at it and just starts, well, this has happened over the last six months. It's going to continue happening over the next six months. And by the time you get out to the third quarter, all of all the news in hindsight in the first half of 2021 is probably going to be very positive. And then they're going to realize that extrapolation is not going to continue. And one of the reasons, I think one of the reasons we will see that is because of the underlying pricing pressures, the underlying inflation pressures. Uh, companies as they restart are not able, if they're trying to fill their employment ranks, they're not being able to hire back uh, people at starting wages that they could before. You, you know, uh, There is more or less a, an implied or actual factual $15 minimum wage in most areas of this country because you can't get people back to work without providing that. And, and at the same time, uh, I think part of the, uh, part of the, the, the goal of the new administration is, you know, basically to, to, you know, steer us toward a, a green environment, uh, focus more and more on, on renewable energy. And that's all a positive, but at the same time, a lot of the early implementations in policy have been, uh, very punitive on the oil and gas industry. In other words, if you don't voluntarily go there, we're going to punish you for staying with the old. And and we're already seeing oil up to $55 a barrel. And if we see energy prices to continue to go up, if we see pricing pressures in the, the earliest stage of the manufacturing sector, as I said, the, the manufacturing of the ISM, prices paid index, basically what, what purchasing managers at the nation's factories are having to pay for their raw material prices are going up very, very fast right now, then 
where's that going to impact? It's going to impact earnings. It's going to impact the the bottom line going forward. And and you're very you're right. By the third quarter, we could have some some surprises on relatively lackluster, even dismal forward earnings projections. Yeah. Jim, shifting gears a little bit, because um, it kind of gets, it feeds back into trying to navigate this massive bubble. And I would argue the market structure is also broken, which makes it, you know, wildly prone to these ma- mammoth swings when it gets outside of its little neighborhood that it's been trading in. You have a couple of proprietary indicators that I thought have been extremely useful to you um, uh, only because you have a, I don't know if I'm going to say it right, but there's a buying pressure and a selling pressure. And I'm just amazed at in the 25 years I've been reading your service, how, how accurate it's been. And I know you just said that you're constantly worried that maybe the things that worked in the past may not work in the future. And you probably don't tell want to tell us exactly how you construct it, but can you can you give us a little bit about you know the, the nature of it and and if you think it's it's liable to capture what's going on and the the current craziness won't derail that as a as an indicator if if you know what I'm talking about yeah the you know our analysis and what we use today goes back to my background knowledge, information, development, the early years of my career, really as a a research and development engineer with IBM. uh, It's very analytical and it's very, you know, results driven. If you go through an analysis and it comes up with very mixed results, well, whatever you were analyzing doesn't work. Uh, I think being a good analyst in today's market really requires understanding and knowing the 80% of or 85% of what doesn't work historically. The other thing that I think, the other aspect I think is very important in investment strategy and particularly a safety first investment strategy is is understanding that the the objective is not to forecast the market. I've never been able to forecast the market. It was surprising after the 87 crash, we got all these accolades that we saw the the crash coming on Black Monday. No, we just saw all these warning flags of wind and we kept going incrementally, incrementally, more and more defensive until all of a sudden we found, we we tightened up the stops on our remaining stocks and we ended up triggering those stocks the week before Black Monday. Um, That was not foresight. It was basically saying the... These are the risks. This is our acceptance of those risks or non-acceptance. Some of the tools we have today, I'll lay out a couple of them because I think they're very valid. One of them we've developed is what we call um, the housing bubble bellwether index. We first developed this in 2005, in the summer, July 2005. And when we did, I, I have to hand it to Forbes because I knew Malcolm Forbes at the time. He called and he said, Jim, I want to use this, but uh, I don't know if we really buy into it, uh, but we're going to put it out there. And they put it out there and it turned out to be omniscient because it actually peaked like a month later, and by the and that was in <laughs> July of 2005. What was in what was in that housing bubble bellwether index that told us that that housing was in a bubble and when it started to deflate? It basically was the most sensitive stocks to housing. That included the home builders, included the finance companies, the title mortgage com- companies, and stuff. And and so we basically went out find this found this composite of all these 
housing sensitive stocks. And we did this by looking at those versus you know, housing, housing data uh, in the past, and we compiled an index. So it, basically it was going parabolic in 2004, 2005, and it peaked, as I said, uh, in the summer of 2005. By 2006, it told us that the air was going out of the housing bubble. And, and we felt that that could reach a broader economic impact. Uh, interestingly, we reintroduced and updated that housing bubble bellwether barometer uh, about uh, 18 months ago because of what we're seeing in the housing sector. And, and I think if you follow a composite like that housing bubble, we, we like to take the bubble out of it and just calling a, call it our housing yeah, yeah. bellwether barometer. Yeah. Easy to say, yeah. Because, because otherwise it's jumping to the conclusion that housing's in a bubble. Uh, but it's going parabolic today. Yeah. And, and when that peaks and has been falling for three or four months, uh, and if it's coming down sharply, it's going to be a very strong indication that we are heading for economic market, economic trouble. It, it may not happen before the market peak like it did back in 2005, but it will tell us early enough that we need to move to a more defensive position. We have another similar tool we developed in um, in terms of the momentum stocks. I mean, it's like the FANG stocks, but we went out and we compiled, a, we call it our Gorilla Index. And this is another tool that we developed back in the late 90s, and compi it was compiled of the biggest cap stocks moving the market. Okay. Uh, and it's composed of fewer than 2% of the stocks in the S&P 500, but they compose 28% of the capitalization. So where a lot of the momentum is going right mm -hmm, now. Mm -hmm. And again, once that peaks and starts falling, and, and it was it did it gave us a good signal in the tech bubble, I think that also will be another tool. And the third, the third tool that, that we rely on a great deal is our what we call our negative leadership composite. There you go. That's the one yeah, I was thinking of. This one we developed back in the 90s, and it is, it's a fail-safe tool. If you are not in gear with the market, it basically tells you, you know, get in gear. I, I've known a lot of really good analysts in the past who, who make a spectacular call and then end up making a horrific call and, and are wrong literally for, for whole cycle or 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 longer and it it basically measures it focuses almost entirely on downside leadership in the market and if, if you'd like i can explain a little bit of what goes into that yeah please do yeah yeah i would because i i've just been astounded at 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 how well your compendium of of indicators has worked but this one in particular and i would been i've been dying to know a little bit more what's in the secret sauce yeah and and you know for example you know, when we went into the pandemic last last February, and the market peaked in, in February, and, and it was the, the fastest path into a bear market in Wall Street history, we were defensive. No one was as defensive as they would have liked to have been, including us, but we were defensive ahead. Coming out of the March bottom, we're saying, we don't trust this. We don't, I don't think that was the low. And yet by we, the time we got into April and and that negative leadership stock composite started going basically straight up. It, it told us the downside leadership in the market 
was dissipating at a very rapid pace. In other words, it had disappeared. And it, it basically, as reluctant as we were emotionally, it forced us to incrementally incre start increasing our exposure, uh, not up to an extreme position, but it forced us to move in the right position. And that's why we, we incrementally increased our position coming out of the pandemic lows uh, over the next six months, even though emotionally, uh, even as with my 40, 50 years experience in the market, I, I was going, I don't like this, but I have to listen to this tool. Um, it's basically, as I said, look some downside leadership. Why not upside leadership? Well, let's look at it this way. If you look at uh, new highs and new lows on the market every day, um, if an investor buys a stock and it goes up at twenty dollars, it goes up to five dollars. Another stock they own goes down to fifteen. One goes to twenty-five. One goes to to fifteen from twenty dollars. Which stock is the investor going to sell? They're going to sell it went to the when the went to twenty-five because they bought a stock to buy to make a profit. They're going to hold on to the one that went to fifteen because you know they're going to at least hold on yeah. to it until it comes yeah. back to twenty and they yeah. break even. So the decision to sell stocks that are hitting new highs is, is basically just a profit-taking decision. The decision to sell stocks that are hitting new 12-month lows is a, it's, it's a forced objective decision. Yeah. And yeah. That, that is okay. when, by measuring that downside leadership, and we basically look at the breadth and depth and spread of that downside leadership in determining, you know, if we're if if we're seeing the developing risk of a of a bear market, uh, the concern we have today about that 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 NLC or negative leadership composite is that because of the severity and short duration of that pandemic spike down that 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 drop in February March of last year. It's still, it's still recording data, historical data from that period. So we know that between now and after we get through the March bottom, it could be distorted to the positive side. It is very positive today. You know, and, and that, of course, that kept, that moved us to increase our allocation last year. Um, I think that it will, at some point later this year, start showing what we call bearish distribution. If it starts showing that bearish, bearish distribution, and, and more likely later in the second quarter or as we go into the third quarter, then it will be telling us get defensive. Uh, we, we basically set it up uh, mathematically as a scale to go from zero to plus 100, zero to minus 100. And, and we use a, a threshold of plus 20 to the upside to tell us if you're not increasing exposure, you should be. And that's what forced us to do that after the low last March. And as we go through this year, by the second or third quarter, if we see distribution, it goes down to minus 50 and we are not moving more defensive then we will, we will force ourselves to be. So just to be clear, you, 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 you're, you, you're watching the, the NLC a little closer than you usually would this year because it may be distorted. It may be looking better than it really is. So you have to keep, you're going to keep a closer eye on it. I think that's what you just yeah. said. Is that correct? Until we, until we get out to April, I'm concerned 
because knowing the internal calculations on it, I know it's positive. I, I think it's it's um, it it tells us give the market the benefit of doubt until we see other warning flags appear. But don't be blindly bullish because I'm I'm concerned it might be distorted until we get out to April or May, and that's where uh, where the the probability will increase that that the validity will will be a closer to high uh, to a higher percentage. But what what's unique about about the tools that we develop, and this is true of of the Gorilla Index, the Housing Bellwether Barometer, and and the NLC is. Um, when I started in this business back in 1980, the first thing I did as an engineer is I, I picked up uh, Norm Fosbeck's book called Stock Market Logic. Mm-hmm. It, it had it had like 60 chapters on different indicators, what worked, what didn't, had statisticals. You know, and, and we bought that book for every person we hired and said, you need to read this. Um, and uh, a lot of the a lot of the analysis on Wall Street, they, they looked at things like uh, AAII sentiment, uh, investor sentiment, and, and put-to-call ratios, which can be helpful short-term, but not long-term. And, and understanding what works and what doesn't work. The best tool that you can develop, or the best one you can follow, is one that if the market is going against you, it moves more and more in that direction to tell you to get in that direction. Uh, what I mean by that is that in terms of our negative leadership composite, if we were to peak in the second quarter of this year, suppose we're still at 75% and it goes to minus 30 and the market starts falling and we're saying, well, that's not too too negative. The more the market falls, the greater that downside leadership will build and the more that that tool will force us to move in that right direction. Uh, I'll give you conversely the the, uh, the tool that, that it's a we consider I consider it a bad tool because it 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 you know it doesn't work reliably and it can be very misleading. If you follow investor sentiment, um, percent bulls, percent bears, and there's multiple gauges out for there for following that, um, you can say, well, okay, uh, in 2000. The market peaked and we had 70% bulls. Or, and so if the indicator goes up to that 70%, then I'm going to start cutting back. Okay, suppose the market rallies and, and it only goes up to 65%. As soon as the market starts falling, what happens to that tool? It starts coming down from 65%. In other words, it didn't reach the level that told you to, to be yeah, more cautious. Yeah. And now it's t- giving you a signal that makes you feel more comfortable in not yep. being more cautious. So uh, there are good tools and there are dangerous tools. And the dangerous tools are the one ones that, that can give you a bad signal and continue giving you a bad signal or even worse signal if the market's going uh, in the opposite direction of what you, what you are positioned for. Jim, let, let me ask you... Um a question that's been fascinating me for as I'm listening to you talk about these uh, these indicators, and that is uh, the role of passive. Because if we go back to that housing bellwether index back in 05 peaking when it did, um, and you're looking at the same indicator now, how have you adjusted your uh, indicators for the increasing role that passive investing 
plays in these markets? Is it something that you really need to think about? Because it, it seems to be on every other um, uh, 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 kind of level, but maybe with just plain data indicators, it's not. I'm just curious to know what, how big a factor it's been for you. Well, it's the passive investing is a widely followed strategy today. And the younger you are, the the more, the stronger the, 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 the uh, adherency to that passive investing. If, if someone were to come to me in their 20s and 30s with today's extreme overvalue and, and say, uh, you know, what should I, how should I invest? I would be 100% in favor of, of passive investing. Put so much money aside every month or every quarter into the market, find uh, uh, several good funds that are broad, you know, five-star, Morningstar rated funds, and just keep putting the money away because dollar cost averaging will help you out. It will bail you out as we go through what lies ahead. The problem is when someone gets, uh, as the portfolio gets larger and someone gets into their 40s or 50s or starts looking toward retirement, those incremental you know, additions to their dollar cost averaging become smaller and smaller relative to the portfolio size. And, and someone, whereas someone in their 30s can ride through a 50% bear market and, and, and it's not going to affect them if they keep doing that dollar cost averaging, buying all the way through the lows, they'll do very well coming out. For someone within 10 or 20 years of retirement, if you go through a bear market like the washout of the tech bubble or the 2007 to 2009 bear market, it will change your retirement plans. And, and that's, so, so the passive investing doesn't change our philosophy. We're not market traders. Our turnover in our portfolio is far less than most mutual funds out there. We average 20 to 25% turnover uh, on most years. Uh, when we buy a stock, we buy it for the long term. Uh, but at the same time, that doesn't mean we find a follow a blind, fully invested strategy yeah. all the time. Yeah. You don't you don't have the same strategy in a valuation bubble today that you had back in 2009, 2010 in the first two years of this bull market. And I, I think that's that is going to be one of the great awakenings in the next bear market. It's going to be what happened to me in 73, 74 in that um, passive investing is going to get a very, very black eye. And going into 73, 74, the, 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 sa- the fail-safe strategy was called the Nifty 50. 50, yeah. yeah. Those 50 bluest of blue chip stocks that you could buy, hold forever, and ride through anything. We went back and did analysis on that when we started Investec. And, and those stocks, on average, lost 61% yeah. in 7374. And and um, you know, I, I again I am very much an, an avid fan of passive investing for a young investor, yeah. dollar cost averaging, building a portfolio. But as you approach retirement, managing risk moves to the top of your investment strategy and, and focus. But I, I guess um, when when trying to fine-tune market timing uh, indicators. You know, we, one of our early guests in the series, Mike Green, talked about passive investing um, very eloquently. It made a lot of people's heads spin. But, but one of the things he, he said was that you've got this formula in the market now that says, if I have cash, I buy stocks. 
period. That's the simple algorithm. That's it. If you, if you put a dollar in, I'm going to go and put it in the stock market for you. We keep zero cash. How, how has the, the extraordinary rise of that phenomenon and the sheer amount of money that's being allocated to that simple strategy, how has that, I mean, maybe it hasn't at all, but has it made you have to tweak your market timing indicators because it would suggest that you're going to get this stronger push higher that maybe you wouldn't have had before? Well, it, I think the, the psychology in the market today, obviously, has, has changed some of the fundamentals. Yeah. And, and, but that doesn't mean that, you, that we've rewritten valuation right. history. And now all of a sudden, the 95th percentile in, in overvaluation becomes the norm. Uh, I, <laughs> we, we hope. <laughs> I, I, at least I, I certainly hope not, or else, uh, or else Dow 100,000 could be, become an objective. Um, then we're back, then we're going into the tulip mania of the 1600s, another area that's fun to read about. Yeah. Uh, in terms of the, the money, uh, the, basically the sidelines money, uh, I think one of the misnomers on Wall Street is to talk about cash on the sidelines. Uh, it really doesn't exist. There, there's ca always cash. But for every buyer of a stock, there's also yep. a seller of a stock, and uh, except in the case of new issues or secondary offerings. So what you really have is that stock prices follow psychology. They follow expectations. And I think that the next bear market... Uh, when, when it does start, whether it's six months from now or 18 months from now, I think the next bear market is going to be extremely volatile. It is going to be a, a severe downward drop, and then you're going to see uh, uh, some stability, an upward bounce, and that upward bounce will be bring in the first wave of the buy-the-dip advocates who only have investing experience in the past 10 years. And then uh, the next wave down will basically take those out and will go lower. If you go back and look at the bigger bear markets, and, and tw I, I don't want to go back to 29 for the sake of it being 1929, because yeah. I don't think we're heading into another Great Depression. But there were some very violent uh, down cycles and subsequent rallies that were you know, basically very convincing that the bottom was behind yeah. us. And I think, so I think that the, the, the next bear market is going to be very volatile. I think that the, our challenge at that point will be patiently trying to wait for and identify the ingredients at the bottom. And, and that's difficult. It's, yeah. uh, it's difficult identifying bottoms. Uh, we, it, historically, our mistakes have come from being too defensive, too early at market tops. You know, um, summer of 1987 before the crash, we were already up to 50, 60% cash in August. Um, and that was over two months before the crash. Uh, that wasn't too long. But in the late 90s, we were really defensive by 97, 98. And we were getting beat up on the front page of the Wall Street Journal for being out of step with a new paradigm. And, yeah. and I'm just shaking my head. I said, I, I might be wrong, but I'm not going to subject, you know, our, our clients or our subscribers yeah. are on the money management or on the research side to that risk. I, I, and that's the situation today. I, we are following defensive. 
but we've learned from those past market peaks that being too defensive too early can leave some some profits some valuable profits on the table um so we're right within our comfort zone but if anything as we go through this year i think our comfort zone is more likely based on on whether we see warning flags from those indicators i think our our position is more likely to become more defensive not not more bullish yeah perfect you know jim there's gonna be a lot of people listening to this um this this, this past hour and change who are going to want to find out more about these indicators more about the work you do um because it's been an absolutely fascinating conversation so if you wouldn't mind just just take a couple of minutes just to let people know how they can find out more about about you and the work you do yeah, we actually have, uh, I started Investec Research 40 years ago in 1980. Um, we still publish today. And uh, we have subscribers uh, throughout the world. I think it's like 45 different countries. Um, most of them are seasoned investors. We did a, a poll of our subscribers and the majority have over 20 years experience in the market ironically yeah, very interesting the interesting. ones with over 20 years experience have a greater respect for market for risk. risk yeah yeah yeah, yeah. And, yeah and investec you can reach investec uh on the website www.investec.com that's with one t-i-n-v-e-s-t-e-c-h.com that's the easiest way um and it has the phone number on there um about 25 years ago we started a separate but sister it's an affiliated money management firm called stack financial management and and that came from an outgrowth of of really uh encouragement from people like chuck allman and marty zweig saying you know the people need someone who's going to manage risk in their portfolio and uh we did that we took our initial clients through the tech bubble successfully and 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 we subsequently did did very well in in avoiding of course the housing bubble and and the worst of the damage from from that bear market it doesn't mean we didn't go down we did but not you know it was less than half or about yeah. half of what broader indexes did uh that's available on the website www.stackfinancialmanagement.com and there's a lot of information up there. We also have some research information that you can go in and read about some of our technical tools and, and some of the background of the company and what built the companies. Fantastic. Well, look, Jim, um, uh, it, it's, it's been a real pleasure. Uh, I've, I've let Fleck do most of the heavy lifting here because I've just been sitting here listening, fascinated by it all. It's, re it's so interesting. And that, that, what, that uh, data point you just shared about the, uh, the average age of customers, I find truly fascinating. That, that's really... That's really interesting to me. So listen, I, I wish you all the best with, uh, with whatever comes next. And hopefully you'll come back and talk to us uh, again when, when we see these uh, indicators demand that. It would be my pleasure. Jim, thank you very much for doing this. And uh, when and as Grant said, when the indicators start to get a little wobbly, maybe we can come back and talk about this again. Let's do that. It's going, it's going to be an exciting year ahead, I feel. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> I think so. All right, Jim. Thanks Aloha, lot, Jim. Jim. Aloha. Thank you. I'll talk to you from Montana then. There you go. Okay. Right, take care. Bye-bye. Well, like I said, I, I, I let you do a lot of the heavy lifting there. I was just sitting and listening. It was, it was fantastic. Really, really interesting. Well, I, I'm, it was, it, it's obviously a different tack from yeah. many of the others that we take since, since this was so really equity market specific and, 
And while we didn't talk individual stocks, it was nowhere near as macro as no, so many of no, our no, other no, conversations. No, but I'll tell you, I mean, we all spend a lot of time reading and thinking and doing all the things we can. If you just want to take one service and that would kind of keep the guardrails around you. I mean, I, th I think it, it, I've just, it's just been amazing. I've watched it in real time now for 25 yeah. years or so. And well, well, you know, that's, that, that was the interesting thing to me is, 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 is having that. And, and even if, as Jim said there, he's not confident fully in, in one of those things because he thinks last February, March has skewed them, but just understanding that and understanding that April will give you the all clear again to, to trust it fully again. As you said, guardrails is the perfect analogy. That's what it is. It's having these things that you can rely on to, to sanity check yourself. It's like, okay, I feel bullish. What's what's, or what's I don't yeah. feel bullish, but they're going up. And, and what's this telling says, me? Yeah, yeah. And I think having the, the 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 housing bellwether and the gorilla index to kind of augment that. Again, I've watched this in real time. I remember when he built yeah. the thing in the housing bubble. So anyway, um, it will be interesting to see when we down the road talk to another guest who we won't talk about, who is a pretty solid technician yeah. himself, if he'll be able to talk about the current modern structure and how that's made his life more difficult or, or not. not. Yeah, yeah, know? exactly right. Well, look, um, another fascinating installment of the end game mate thank you for 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 doing this um jim's just giving you all the places you can you can find him uh you can find me on twitter if you're not already following me then please do so uh you'll find me at ttmygh and i'm at fleckcap the, the the original the one and only at fleckcap <laughs> mate until next time until next time Thanks, guys. All right, there we go. That, Jim, that, that was, was that was fun. wonderful. That was really, really was interesting. Just, it was Thank fun you. going back. I'm going, okay, what should I have a bill? Because I don't remember all this stuff. I, as you start talking, you know, oh, yeah, all the brain cells yeah. are still there. I don't have them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was that was fabulous. That yeah, was really, really, really interesting. I'll, I'll, I, yeah. Well, and uh, tough, so. I'll tell you, tough questions about today because yeah. no one knows. I, ironically, I, I swear, you know, after... After the tech bubble, I said, I've, I'd figure, I know how to handle this, you know, and, and we get out here and you have a, you have a central bank that basically has uh, their foot to the floor on the gas and an implied guarantee that they're going to do anything and everything Whatever it takes. to stabilize, not just the economy, but also stabilize the stock market because if there's one thing that both Powell and Yellen know, it's that if the market goes too early, the economy's going to go. Yeah. Well, and, and, so, and you've, so even, they have to, you've even got Yellen, you know, and the Fed talking about trying to affect equality or equity and then the yeah. climate. It's like climate change. Yeah. It's an audacious mix. <laughs> yeah. Well, they can try the Japan you know, where all of a sudden the central bank starts becoming one of the major, you know, equity holders. But, you know, that that didn't work very well for them in 2007 to 2009. Yeah. You know, it, you know, it still lost 60 percent. Um, so it's it's going to be it's going to be interesting. Um, yeah. And, and there are no guarantees. There's no it's, it's part of the way part of the reason why. You know, the NLC is is valuable. I know it is distorted right now. I think we have to get to April before I'm going to feel really comfortable mm -hmm. that the distortion is is gone. 
And and that's why you follow things like the housing bellwether mm-hmm. and and the gorilla because the the biggest valuation speculation you know uh, psychology stocks are the ones that fall first and the fastest and the hardest and if they're coming you know they're going they've gone exponential now if they start coming down exponential <laughs> then there's a good chance that the that the Peak's going to be in place. Yeah. Fascinating so Bill, stuff. I, I, I've been one of your biggest fans for a long time, and I always tell people that they want to get a, one service to take. I always tell them it's yours. I, I think we know when that happens because Christina will call me up, and you know, our director of our research, she says, I think Bill Fleckenstein just said something because we're getting a whole bunch of phone calls in here mentioning Bill. <laughs> well, it'll, it'll be interesting to see what happens after this. So, yeah, uh, yeah, hopefully, hopefully, you, get a, hopefully you get a bunch yeah, more. If we get another bump up, we'll see. That is, that is really a good interview. That I, I think the two, of you, the two of you with your archival knowledge and, and respect for risk are, are a great, great team. And fun well, to interview thank, with. Well, thank you. Oh, and, thank you, Jim. And, and we've got and we've got Bill's hair, so we got we got it all going for us. <laughs> yeah. Well, I bet you're ready to hit the beach, huh, Jim? It's only what ten uh, thirty there. Uh, yeah, it it is. Uh, Perfect. All right, great. All well, right. Jim, thank you so much. Thanks, thanks again. I really Jim. appreciate it. Okay. Thanks, guys. Take care. Bye bye. Nothing we discussed during the end game should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.